This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jew, Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Scevia were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Thank you, Kristen. Good morning, church. How you doing? How was your week? How do I answer that? I don't even know. Like, pastor's talking to me. It's a little weird. All right. Uh, Here's something I came across this week that that was interesting and very telling. It's a book that's out. It's called, One Day I Will Be Somebody. Tell me if this doesn't somewhat, at least at some level, resonate with us. Don't we all have this kind of desire in us to, to be somebody? And I don't know, I feel like I hear this a lot. Maybe it's because my family watches AGT, uh, whatever it is. And normally it said something there like that. And then to thunderous applause of people saying, yes, we should strive to be somebody. Maybe it's worded a little different. Uh, maybe here it said like this, I want to make a mark on this world. I, I want to matter. Or maybe how about this? I want to leave uh, a legacy. And I think there's something in us that just makes us all you know, really want to be somebody, to matter, to make our mark. Well, then you look at YouTube and you look at you know the celebrities around us and we see people who seem to have done that. They've made a name for themselves and if, well, they can do it, these talentless YouTube people, then why can't I do this as well? And we end up kind of living for this thing. And I, mean, I get it. I get the whole idea of a legacy. And that's challenging, especially to men that we want to live a legacy. But let me just kind of boil this all down. And let's get a biblical perspective on all this. And I think I can really boil it all down with one key question. Whose legacy are we supposed to live for? Yeah, I want to I wanna leave a legacy for my kids, but I want to leave a legacy of Jesus for my kids and my grandkids. And 80 years from now, if the Lord tarries, like I want them to look back and to not say, man, wasn't Jamie amazing? But to say, isn't Jesus incredible? And that legacy needs to be a legacy for the Lord. Now, why am I talking about all of this? I mean, honestly, I feel like I talk about this sort of thing quite often, but I am bound to the text. 
And I am bound to emphasize what the text emphasizes. And so gladly, we take a look at Acts 19, and we see this. Now, whenever I preach a message, I'm always asking the question, why did the author write this to the audience? What was he trying to get across? What was he trying to communicate? It's a principle called the, the principle of single interpretation. There's one meaning, many applications, but one meaning to a group of people. So uh, who wrote the book of Acts? Do you remember? Luke, the same person who wrote the uh, Gospel of Luke. And uh, uh, why did he write this story down? Well, whenever you're talking about narrative, there's a reality of, well, this is what happened, so that's why he wrote this down. But it goes further than that. There, there's ways in which he wrote that reveal certain things to us. And, and what, what Luke will do in his writing is he'll tell a story, then he'll give a little summary statement, and tell a story and give a little summary statement, and we can really gather a lot from those. So let's do some Bible study this morning. And I want your eyes to fall on two key summary statements in the text. And I want you to look at verse number 17. So here's verse 17, and, and uh, Luke says this, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Now watch this, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or magnified or made much of. Uh, and, and he's talking about the name of Jesus going forward. And really, that is the melodic line all through the book of Acts, the name of Jesus going forward. In fact, look at verse number 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So this idea again of the name of the Lord, the name of the Lord going forward. And what you have in our text, interestingly enough, are some people who try to take the name of the Lord and use it for their own fame and their own glory. And it ends pretty badly for them. And so unquestionably, as I studied the text this week, I spent a lot of time doing so, it became very, very clear. The point that Luke was trying to make is it's really bad to live for your own name and really good to live for the name of Jesus. So here's the big idea for the day, and I want you to write it down. Let's be nobodies who live for Jesus. I can even feel right now in the room how that doesn't sit very comfortably with, with us because this is not what you're told. This is not what you hear all the time. You're told to strive to be somebody, to strive to, to be unique and special. And like, I don't want to quell anyone's motivation, but I want to point the motivation to the right place. And not our name, but the name of Jesus. All right, I see I have some work to do, so let's do this. Here's four steps. Here's four steps to get there. Here's step number one. Write it down. We need to recognize. We need to recognize. What do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, let's look at the text. Here is uh, Acts 19. Look at verse number 11. I'm going to read this, and, and check this out. This is incredible. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Now, come on, we read that, and our first initial response is, wow, isn't Paul incredible? I mean, he's so amazing that all he has to have is a handkerchief touch him or an apron that he's wearing touch him, and that be carried off, and the sick are healed, demons are cast out. Isn't Paul incredible? Isn't that our natural response to that? Televangelists have tried to claim that same glory and do the same thing. It used to be years ago that he could buy a handkerchief by some televangelist that he prayed over or wiped his sweat on. And no, thank you. I'll pass. 
But, but look at the first two words of verse number 11. And let's read them together. And, come on, and God, right? Who was doing the miracles? Who was healing the diseases? Who was casting out the demons? God was. And though our natural response is to be enamored with and impressed with Paul, we're kind of missing the point that Luke is trying to make. In fact, let me show further, because you have what God did, uh, which is he did the miracles, he did the healing, which also have what Paul did. Do you notice there were two items mentioned in the text? Take a look at verse number 12 now. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that were touched by his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So uh, um, very... Um, agreed upon by most commentators, all the commentators really, is that these were just simply things that people who worked trades wore. So you think about it this way, like, like a handkerchief that we wear today. And, and back in the day, I used to play, I used to play uh, um, a lot of volleyball. And uh, I know you would assume from my uh, figure that I must be athletic. But back in the day, I don't know why that's funny, okay? Uh, but back in the day, I would, and I would, you know, how the, you do the whole thing like a pirate, right? You put this on like this, and you tie it up, and you flip that thing back, and it's either a volleyball Jamie or a prison Mike, one of the two. But anyway, the, 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 that's what they would do, and they would, you know, collect their sweat on that, and then Paul would just cast it aside, and then someone would pick it up, and they would take it uh, and do the thing. The other thing was the apron, and that's what they would wear to protect their clothing as they did the work. So you have these two things that Paul was using as he worked. In other words, Paul didn't leave his job as a tent maker to go to the sick. He didn't leave his job as a tent maker to go to the who were possessed by demons. He just kept working. And God did it through those things. Without question, it's just interesting how Luke writes this to say, it's not Paul, it's God. It's not Paul, it is God who did it. And it's really is step one for living in Jesus' name. To recognize how often we give man the glory when it really only belongs to God. We need to be very careful about this when it comes to other people and how we view other people. Think about how silly it is that we have Christian celebrities. Think about how silly it is that those two words go together. Read Philippians 2, where you have Jesus and the kenosis of Christ. It's called the self emptying of Jesus who did not consider a thing to be grasped to be in heaven and, and he let all that go and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, a humiliating death. So you have that and then you have people who are leveraging his name for their own fame and their own glory. Now I listen, not every person who has Christian fame is seeking it. I get it. Some guys are just doing their thing and people are pouring that uh, onto them, foisting that fame on them. But there are lots who do seek it and want it for their very own. Even Paul realized very clearly that it was not him. In fact, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where it says this, but he said to me, my grace is is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in, what's the word, church? Weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
come on, th- think for a minute about your favorite Christian author, your favorite Christian podcaster, your favorite Christian preacher, and I want to say to you, there is not one preacher who has the power to save a soul. Because it is not God that does, it's not man that does the saving, it's God that does the saving. There is not one church growth strategist who can dial up just the right circumstances and the right motivation to people and the right marketing scheme to grow a church. Who brings the increase? Only God does, and that was written by Paul himself. Listen to me. John Piper is nothing. Tim Keller is nothing. Paul Tripp is nothing. I thought maybe I'd hear an audible gasp when I said that one. John MacArthur is nothing. (laughs) There's the gasp. And the reality is these men would probably say amen to that. But don't we all want to look at them and say at some level, they're so incredible, they're so amazing, I've done it. Matt Chandler is amazing. Oh, God is amazing. It happens to use a man named Matt Chandler. Let's refuse to give men the glory, all right? And then, then there's this. We need to also recognize this in ourselves. It's easy to see it in other people and get caught up in that, but how about in us? How about our desire to take the glory for ourselves? Our desire to be somebody, to matter, to mean something, to rise above our peers and everybody else. It's so ingrained in us that when God begins to do things in our ministries or in our work, that we easily believe it's us. We want to believe it's us. We long to believe it's us. And I talk a lot about these Christian celebrities that have fallen, but I gotta believe that at some level, this was the problem. God began to bear fruit in their ministries, and I've been in the room where I've seen one claim credit for it. I'm telling you, it's not them, it is God. Now, any other Christian pastor celebrities in the room? Anyone here? No, none of us are, right? So this, how does this apply to you? How does it apply to your work, to your life? What do you, how do you grab this and live this out? Well, anything that we do is supposed to be done heartily. Do you remember this? As to the Lord. And maybe you're a salesman who's had a lot of success at sales. And it's easy to say, I'm a pretty good salesman. And to take the glory for yourself. Maybe you're a good father, and you pride yourself on being a good father. And I want to say that again. You pride yourself on being a good father or a good mother or a good homeschooler or a good baker or coffee, um, what are they called, baristas. If there are any good baristas, please come see me afterwards because we really need to get you some equipment here. Can I get a witness? There's a couple. So anyway, this, this passion that we have, we easily can claim the glory for ourselves. But listen, we're nothing and God is everything. And we got to recognize that any success comes from God and God alone. Because look, if you're a good salesman, it's only because God's given you the gifts to be a good salesman. <laughs> I'm going to steal a Matt Chandler quote because he's so awesome. No, because God's awesome through him. But uh, he often talks about Shaq. And like, like how unimpressive it is that Shaq can dunk a basketball. Do you know the guy stands seven foot one inches tall? He has a reach of 12 foot five inches. So to dunk is kind of like, eh, all right? 
that's not impressive. Because who made Shaq tall? Shaq? Come on, who did it? God did it. And only God deserves the glory. We've got to recognize that. We've got to recognize our tendency to give the glory to man. And then there's this. Write this down as well. We have to refuse. And what I mean by that is we have to refuse to take the glory for ourselves. Because if we don't refuse it, it can end very, very badly. Let me show you in the text. Take a look at verse number 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So at this time what was happening, it was very, very common for there to be these guys, these Jewish uh, exorcists who would go around and they would cast out evil uh, spirits, but they would also have these oaths and these rituals that they would repeat in order to bring blessings on people or bring curses on people. So it was not uncommon at all to see these guys. And so, especially like in places in, in Ephesus, in Ephesus, it's known historically being a place of a lot of witchcraft and dark magic and evil that was all very prevalent in Ephesus at this time. And so then you have Jewish people coming and saying, okay, you have your thing, we have our thing, it's God, it's similar, but it's different, and they would do this, but these guys were, were trying to create this little ritual, this little conjure, if you will, and look at how they worded it, I adjure you by the Jesus who, who proclaims? Paul proclaims. Who, who was getting the glory for this in their mind. They were like, they were ignoring the fact that it was God, not Paul. And so they were seeing Paul, and they didn't know Jesus. They didn't care about Jesus. They didn't really care about Paul. They just wanted what Paul had. They wanted that power, and I believe they wanted the notoriety and the fame that came with having the kind of power that Paul has. Well, pastor, where in the world do you get that? Well, good question. I want you to see this in the text. Take a look at verse number 14. Uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, just to uh, let you know this, it wasn't the Jewish high priest. It was a, notice the indefinite article, a Jewish high priest. And chances are it's just a chief priest. So not the high priest, but a chief priest of this area. But anyway, verse number 15. Uh, so these guys were doing this. They're trying to invoke the name of Jesus. And then check this out in verse number 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you. Think about that insult for a minute. Think about how Luke is wording this to teach us something. Jesus is a somebody. Paul is a somebody. But you, you're a, you're a nobody. And I believe that insult got them right at the seat of their idol. And the spirit doesn't stop there. He beats them up, <laughs> strips them naked, and throws them out in the street for everyone to see. So the insult, the assault, the humiliation is all apart. Not what they wanted. They wanted the glory. They wanted the fame. What they got instead was utter humiliation. In fact, take a look at verse number 17. And this became known to all the residents. And they wanted their name to be known for being great. Instead, their names were known for being weak and foolish. 
And my mind can't help but go to some of these celebrity pastors who have fallen and who, if they were doing it for their name, now have been publicly revealed and but how about us? How about you? How about me seeing the danger of trying to live for our own fame, trying to make a name for ourselves, trying to be somebody? Do you know how ingrained this is in our hearts and our minds? Do you know how much we do this? I want you to think about this for a moment, that uh, you know, tomorrow as you go about your day and the next day and the next day as you live your life, I want you to consciously think about how often you have two choices in front of you, kind of like a door A and a door B. And door A is the door of self-promotion, self-protection, the door of pride, where door B is the door of humility and putting yourself lower. Am I going to put myself higher? Am I going to increase? Or am I going to put myself lower? Am I going to decrease? And just notice how often we do this. And, and maybe it's a moment of self-protection. Well, when I said that, what I really meant was da 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 to make ourselves look better. Uh, maybe it's a moment of name dropping, kind of like I did when I was with Brad Pitt the other day. I just totally name dropped there. It didn't work in the first service either. I don't know why I tried that joke a second time and it really didn't fit then, but you know, my jokes are my humility. Can I get a witness? Don't answer. All right. So uh, there's the, but you know, like all the times we do this and the the self-protection, the stories where we're the hero, and the, oh, the other day, I, and how about me, and me, and me, and I, and I'm telling you, if you're aware of this, you're going to see how very often we do this. I want to encourage you, let's choose the door of humility. The door of self-promotion and pride ends in a bad place. In fact, Scripture says that pride comes before a fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. And I'm telling you, let's get humility in place. Let's think about this and take that door of humility more and more often. Four steps to really live as nobodies for Jesus. One is to recognize our tendency to live for our glory, to glorify man, to refuse uh, the uh, um, uh, temptation of glorifying ourselves. And this step number three, write this down. Uh, to repent, to repent. And I, I want to focus on repentance a little bit. This has been something that God has been bringing me through personally. And I want, to, I want to just take you through some things, both from the text and from my life, if I may, that I think will be helpful when it comes to repentance. I think we need to revisit the idea and talk about it. But let me show you where it's coming from the text. I, I, uh, not only should the main idea come from the text, but the points should come from the text. So where did I get repentance? Good question. Look at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear, and what church? Fear, fear get that in mind, fell upon uh, them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, watch this. And uh, also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Like I mentioned before, witchcraft was very prevalent in Ephesus. Now, verse number 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it to be, I found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Okay, so this is what's happening. This is repentance. 
Now, they were believers, so there had to be a repentance already, but this is a further, deeper repentance. And I want to talk about repentance and give you four key truths about real repentance. And write this one down first. Real repentance is motivated by God. Real repentance is motivated by, by God. Now, why do I say real repentance? I'm saying that because there is a repentance that isn't real. It looks real. It seems to be real. But in reality, it is not real repentance. In fact, God's word talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7, a worldly sorrow versus a godly sorrow. And, and there are both seen in scripture and in the church. I read a really good article this week by a guy named Jim Elif, and Jim Elif said this about repentance. Confession by itself is not repentance. Confession moves the lips, repentance moves the heart. Now, this one's going to sting a little bit, but it's so good. Naming an act as evil before God is not the same as leaving it. I'm going to read that one again. Naming an act as evil before God is not the same as leaving it. Remember, repentance is a turning. So you're walking one way, you get hit by truth, and you turn the other way. So often for us, repentance is, oh, I know I'm wrong. I'm sad that I'm wrong. Man, it sucks that I'm wrong. And we keep walking the same way. Real repentance is a turn. And the act of, quote, repentance can be motivated by all kinds of things that aren't the fear of God. Maybe you were caught in sin. And to please a spouse, you repented. But it was more to make your spouse happy with you again or your parents happy with you again than it was repentance before a holy God. Do you know that there is some gain in repentance? You can gain an alleviation of guilt to some level. You can gain admiration and respect of others if you repent. And maybe you just found that the gain of repentance is greater than the gain of my sin, so therefore I repent. And that repentance can come from places that have nothing to do with God and are still bound in that heart idol of our own name, our own fame, and how other people think of us. I think this is really true. I think, I think that one of the biggest problems with modern evangelicalism is that we know too little about God. Because the more you understand God and how awesome he is, how incredible he is, how gracious and good he is, and the more you understand about yourself and you're honest with yourself, the higher God is, the lower you are. And why would we ever think we could possibly take any of that glory and God has said clearly in his word, Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. So obviously this morning I gotta kinda look at you and I gotta ask the question, 
why have you repented? Has there been some repentance in your life that has not been for the fear of God? I also want to point this out to you. Real repentance is motivated by the fear of God, but also real repentance comes at a cost. This is from the text. And you saw it it there. Let's take a look at this again. This is um, uh, verse number 19. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Uh, Pause there for a minute. Books were rare in that day, not nearly like they are today. You can go down to... Um, is there a Borders anymore? Isn't a Bo- I almost said Borders bookstore, but that's gone, I think. Barnes & Noble, or you can go on to um, Amazon and buy books on the cheap now. You probably have tons of books. Uh, back then, they were very expensive uh, to buy books. Uh, so they put their books and they burned them. Now watch this. And they counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Chances are the pieces of silver were a drachma. And a drachma was a one day's wage. Now I said this way wrong in the first service, but you guys are second service, so you don't know that. And you don't need to know that. But uh, a day's wage here in uh, America. Anyone have any idea one day's wage in America? I'll just tell you. 230 bucks. One day's wage here in America. $230 average across America. So you take 230 times that by 50,000. Uh, do you know how much that is? $11 million. It cost them $11 million. That's a huge amount of repentance. But oftentimes, that's what real repentance costs. It's hefty. To really repent, especially of this sin we're talking about today, specifically living for our own name. Like, like come on. Today, I can imagine most you know, little girls, little boys have their YouTubers they follow, and they, you know, maybe one day you can just have this dream that one day maybe I'll have my own YouTube channel, and I'll have lots and lots of followers, and that just seems so exciting, right? And maybe, you know, I don't know what you do. Maybe you do your thing, and, and whatever your thing is, that people are following you on how to shave a cat right. I don't know. Do you shave cats? Uh, how to, you know, whatever, make necklaces, or if you're really cool, then you do, like, you know, um, tabletop terrain for war games, whatever it is that you're going to do. Uh, I know, it's for the elite. It's okay. It's, it's all right. But, but, you know, then, oh, maybe one day I'll have lots of followers and I'll be famous and I'll be in. And, and to really repent of this, you've got to kind of give up that dream and that comes at a cost. Whatever it is, whatever repentance, we think that our sin is going to bring us something and to give that something up comes at a cost. And sometimes there's greater costs involved to really repent and to turn. But also I want to point this out. This is pretty heavy, and I get it. I can see it in the room. I can feel it in the room. Talk about repentance at this level in this way is pretty heavy. But let me give you a couple of things from my own personal experience, and I, I can, I'm going to show you in Scripture as well, that I hope will, will settle your heart a little bit on this. And here's one. Uh, real repentance is a journey. It's a journey. Now what do I mean by that? Um, there are sins that I long ago repented of. But as I grew in my walk with Jesus, as I grew in my understanding of myself, I had to return to that sin and repent again. Not that it was still the same issue that it was when I repented, because there was change. But I understood at a deeper level what my sin cost and how my sin hurt other people. And I've had to come and to say, 
forgive me again. And probably in your life is the same way. Because I'm sitting here this morning, I'm saying repent. And there's an element to where there is a turning, there is a change, there is, that does happen. And there's some element of that that does happen immediately. But I think there's a biblical precedent for sometimes the fruit of repentance also takes time. Let me show this to you in the Bible. So I'm talking about fruit of repentance. Here's Acts 26, verse 20. Check this out. But uh, declared first to uh, those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Check this out. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So repentance should have deeds. You track with me on this? If you're really repentant, there should be evidences, there should be fruit to your repentance. Amen? Okay, now check this out. This is Jesus, and he's getting even more serious about it. He says in Luke 13, verse number 5, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Luke 13, 5 through 9. Got a slide for that. So there we go. All right. So unless you repent, you will all likewise, what's the word, church? Perish. Okay, should we repent? And should there be evidence or fruit of our repentance? Yeah, if not, we're going to perish. Now check out this parable. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree and planted, planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look for, check this out, how long, church? For... Three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Okay, so you think that'd be it. Jesus just made his point. If you got a fig tree that's not bearing figs, get rid of it. After three years, where's the fruit of repentance? Get rid of it. But look at how the story goes. It's so interesting. And he said to him, sir, let it alone for this year also until I dig around it and put on some manure. Then if I should, it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Isn't that weird? Like Jesus comes in and says, cut it down. But yet he says, look, there's also a precedent of giving it even more care and more time to bear fruit. So there is repentance, and there's a journey of further repentance and further fruit. So a couple of key points there. Is repentance important? Vitally important. Have you really repented? I hope so. Should there be fruit to repentance? Yes, there should be. But that often takes time, and we should be gracious. It's a journey. And maybe you're here this morning and you know you have had moments in your life when you have struggled with sin and you've confessed that sin. I know a lot of men and women today are struggling with pornography. And there needs to be a repentance. And there needs to be fruit. And it is a journey to continue to eradicate that kind of thinking and garbage out of your mind, but be fighting that battle, be bearing that fruit. Maybe it's anxiety. I, I, I just, I, it used to never be a problem for me when I was young and I really believed I was that awesome. And then when I realized I'm not, 
uh, uh, anxiety really became an issue for me. And I'm finding it true, especially on Mondays. Now, true, here's how my Mondays go. You know, like, uh, believe it or not, preaching is a lot of work. I know you don't believe it, but it is, okay? And so uh, I preach twice on Sunday. I get home after Sunday, and Courtney will tell you, there's a wall that I hit, and it'd be like all of a sudden, like, oh, my brain doesn't work anymore, and I can't make my mouth say the things that my brain wants to say anymore, and I just need to go lay down and go to, go to bed. So I go to, I'll sleep. I'll, I'll wake up Monday morning. I'm still feeling tired, and so what I do is I drink a lot of, as Jesus would, and, um, and uh, coffee has... And caffeine makes you anxious. And so, I, you know, there's just these patterns that I just, and, and yeah, I've repented of my anxiety, but I have to keep repenting of my anxiety and bearing the fruit, and it is a journey. Now, lastly about repentance, I want to share this and write this down. Uh, real repentance comes at a cost. Real repentance is a journey. But lastly, here's this. Real repentance ends in Jesus. Please hear me on this now. Repentance is a turning from a church. It's a turning to. And Jesus is better. So much better. Jesus brings about more pleasure in his presence than pornography ever could. Jesus brings about a security. I love this, man. Like, do you know this? You need nothing to happen to be completely at peace because Jesus has already died for your sins and rose again, and he loves you, and he is sovereign over all. What are we anxious about? We got Jesus. And since this afternoon, I don't have to sit there and know, are there things in my life that kind of make me want to be anxious? Of course there are. And I've yet to have a portion of my life when there's not something to worry about. Can I get a witness? But I'm telling you, all of it is in his hands. And he's got it. I need nothing else to happen to be completely at rest and at peace. It's, it's something I'm studying with Sabbath, but anyway, that's a whole other sermon, but just, yeah, this is, it's Jesus, which actually brings me to step number four. So you have these four steps, one to recognize, one or two to refuse, three to repent, and then lastly, to rejoice. And I want you to hear the joy in Luke's heart as he shares verse number 20. Look at this with me. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord is going out and it's doing what it does. It is conquering sin. It is healing disease. It's doing all the amazing things it should do. And when you think about this in contrast, like, like the, um, uh, what can we do? What power is there? She's coming to play piano for me, so just relax. Is she gonna attack her dad? No, she's not. She's not. <laughs> um, but the... What power is in Paul's name? None. What power is in Jamie's name? None. What power is in Jesus' name? All the power. In Jesus' name, diseases are healed. In Jesus' name, demons are cast out. In Jesus' name, marriages are restored. In Jesus' name, addictions are conquered. In Jesus' name, not in my name. What do I want my name to go out? His name is the one that does it. And we're living for that and we're pushing for that and rejoicing in the name of Christ. 
That's the passion. That's the joy. That's what's got to drive us. And I'm telling you, when you get on the Jesus name train, it's so much better. And I repented of being on my own name, and I'm repenting of being on my own name, and I'm trying to grow through all of that, and I want to challenge you too as well. So now how do we wrap all this up? I want to just give you two key words as we kind of summarize all of this. Two kind of key words. Here's one. Number one is we need to remember. Remember. Remember who he is and what he has done and why he had to do it. And then rejoice. And as we try to think through those two things, remember and rejoice, I can think of no better way to do that than to observe the Lord's table together. So I'm going to have the men come if they would to help me pass out these elements. We're going to take a moment and we're going to observe communion together. And uh, communion is a time of remembering. The very purpose of communion is that we would remember what Christ has done. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And what I want you to do in this time is to reflect upon what Christ has done. You're going to hold in your hand a broken piece of bread. It's broken because his body was broken. You're going to hold in your hand a cup of juice that represents his blood. It's there because his blood was shed. And his body was broken and his blood was shed because that's how bad my sin is. And what I want you to do in this moment right now is to pause and to contemplate your repentance. Has it been because of the fear and love of God? Or might you need a moment right now to say, I need to return to my repentance. It's a journey, and I need to go back to it, and I need to repent on a deeper level. So right now, take a moment and pray and ask God to reveal your heart to you. Remember what Christ has done and remember why he's done it. His body was broken, his blood was shed because we're that bad. And our response to that needs to be repentance. But God accomplished something amazing with the broken body and shed blood of our Lord. What he did is he took that blood and he covered your sin. And then he rose again, victorious over that sin, giving you the opportunity to live a new life in him. I can live 
at peace even though I'm a sinner. I can live in joy even though I'm a sinner because Christ has died and Christ will forgive me the moment I ask. And even though my repentance needs a journey, his grace covers it all. And I want you to take a moment right now and rejoice in that. God, what we're doing today is so, like, it's so high, so infinite, so beyond our full understanding. And yet, God, it's just so simple. My sin is bad. And I, and I want to turn from it. And you are so good. And I want to rejoice in you. And both those things are possible because of Jesus. And so, Father, as we reflect on that, stir our hearts, stir our affections anew. In your son's name we pray, amen. Bible records in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember him together. The text continues and says, In the same manner, same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's remember him together. And once again, let us pray. The death of your son is the greatest Father, it is the greatest event in human history. In his death, sin was covered. In his death, the enemy was destroyed. In his death, our victory was secured. All in his death. And not just for us, for anyone who would believe. And Father, we just together, to one another, proclaim the Lord's death. And now with hearts filled with the benefits and the joys of being forgiven in Christ, let us proclaim his death to the city of Fort Wayne, and to the state of Indiana, and to the country of America, and to the world at large, that we, Father, would preach the gospel to those who would hear it and proclaim the death of your Son. And then through that, Father, bring others to the glorious knowledge of Christ. And we'll give you and you alone the glory for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. You are loved.